Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about your sleep. Are you sleeping well or are you having difficulty? Maybe if you're in a relationship, you might consider a sleep divorce. And with February upon us, it might be time to participate in Dry February. We talk about the health benefits. And also on the program, we're going to be looking at some of the latest research into cancer. And what is a Myers cocktail? All of this tonight on the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Cameron Diaz, you know the actress, very fine actress. She was talking about a concept known as sleep divorce. What are your thoughts on sleep divorce? Perhaps you're not even sure what it is. Well, sleep divorce is a term that refers to a sleeping arrangement in a romantic relationship where the partners choose to sleep separately. This may involve you having separate beds, separate rooms, or even different areas of the home. For those people who can afford it, I've seen two primary bedrooms in brand new mansions. Yes, I've witnessed those. (laughs) Anyway, I do think it interrupts with intimacy and connection, but the primary motivation behind a sleep divorce is to address sleep-related issues that can affect the quality of sleep for one or both partners, for example. But there's a number of reasons that people might opt into a sleep divorce situation. Number one, and probably number one for everybody out there, and and I'm I'm hearing a bit of it now, (laughs) snoring. One partner may snore loudly, which disrupts the other person's sleep. There also can be different sleep schedules, but just getting back to that snoring, I want to say this, get the help that you need for snoring. It's not good for your health. There's an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, heart attacks. So get that help. Snoring is never normal. Getting back to different sleep schedules. One of the partners may have to get up really early in the morning and the other partner might like to sleep in. Um, You know, that may be because of work that you're getting up at 4 a.m. or something. Perhaps you work in the film industry or in healthcare, you're getting up really early and somebody else may work from home and may get to sleep in that extra bit. Um, There's also restlessness because one partner might be a restless sleeper or even have restless leg syndrome. So they're tossing and turning throughout the night and that can disturb the other person's sleep. And sleep is critical for productivity, for health, for mood. It is so important that you get adequate sleep. So, you know, if sleep divorce is for you, it's an option that you might want to think about and then you can meet in the middle uh, for those conjugal visits. Temperature preferences. Some people like to have cold air coming in and then get under the warm covers and other people might like the heat cranked up. And, you know, so the variations in temp preferences can make it difficult for both partners to find a comfortable sleeping environment. So you may want to head off into another room. Maybe you have a guest room in your house. I think it's important to make both rooms. And I, and I've certainly seen many people in my clinical practice, they sleep in separate rooms and one often brags about how much better their room is than the other, because the primary bedroom typically in a home is better, but you want to make both people feel valued and, and, you know, important and sleep is so important. So you want to make each person's environment, you know, equal as much as you possibly can. Oftentimes primary bedrooms come with a master or a primary bathroom. And so, you know, it's just important that maybe, maybe even you switch every six months, you know, switch out. And so somebody has the bathroom that's associated with the primary bedroom. Sleep divorce might seem very unconventional to you, but it can actually be a practical solution for couples who are facing persistent 
sleep-related challenges. Another time couples sleep apart is when things are not going well in the relationship, and it can actually be a precursor to divorce. The, the housing prices in Canada are so high. The cost of living is so high. It's difficult for people when they separate or divorce to actually purchase their own homes after that. And so oftentimes couples stay together until they can afford to divorce or couples just stay together until the time when they are going to divorce, which I think can be a very challenging issue. And it's for another segment basically, but sleep divorce allows each partner to prioritize their individual sleep needs and it can contribute to overall well-being, improved relationship satisfaction. You might think that it's taking away from your relationship, but it can actually improve things, especially if you're somebody who needs your sleep and it and that may impact your mood or you may have a mood disorder and that may make things worse if you're not sleeping well. So it's important to note that what works for one couple may not work for another. And of course, we don't want to be judgy here judge other people or friends, you know, this is where we get shame and embarrassment when we can't share solutions that we've had to issues we've had in our life with other people because we are afraid we're going to be judged. So communication is key when you're finding a solution that suits both of you. And you know what, there's nothing to be ashamed of, of here. Um, this is definitely a, a very good option. But, you know, if you don't want to take that option and you would rather address the issues, then snoring, for example, you might just try adjusting your sleep position. So some individuals snore more in certain sleeping positions. And so you might want to experiment with different sleep positions, like sleeping on one side that may help reduce snoring, but also going to a sleep clinic will help as well. There are some anti-snoring devices and maintaining a, a healthy lifestyle is critical. So weight loss is important as it relates to snoring, avoiding alcohol and sedatives before bedtime that can help as well. So you have two choices here. You can either address the issues that you're having, or you can go straight to the sleep divorce. And either way, your relationship is definitely likely going to improve. Um, you may have different sleep schedules. So you might want to create a compromise schedule. So finding a compromise that works for both of you, it might involve adjusting your bedtime routines, negotiating wake up times, or finding a middle ground for sleep schedules. You know, I like that compromise. That's what it takes in a relationship, you know, for two people to have compromise. And it's difficult when one person gets offended easily or is highly sensitive. So you really want to look at yourself and just be able to communicate with your partner. And, you know, this is big, have respect for your partner's sleep. While the schedules might differ, respecting each other's need for rest is crucial. I will never wake anybody up. I have such, I need my sleep desperately. And I just feel that everybody else does as well. So you want to minimize disruptions, create a sleep-friendly environment as well. You know, for the restlessness, you might go from a king size, a queen size bed to a king size bed because having more space can help with that. You know, consider separate bedding. That's another thing for the restlessness as well and, and address any of the underlying issues. So if restlessness is due to stress or discomfort, addressing those underlying issues through relaxation, mindfulness techniques, lifestyle changes can be beneficial as well. And, you know, there's ways to adjust the temperature preferences, dual zone bedding, layer the bedding, invest in climate control in your bedroom using a fan, air purifier, a room heater. Those can help as well. But if you're having a sleep disorder, consult a healthcare professional. It is very important. I would say cheers, but guess what? 
February is Dry Feb. Dry Feb is a fundraiser that challenges you to go alcohol-free in February. And I hope you're going to do it because it's for a great cause. It not only helps you to get healthy, it also raises funds to make an impact for people who are affected by cancer. Joining me on the line is Sienna Van Dusen. She is the Advocacy Manager of Prevention and Early Detection. Good evening, Sienna. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Maureen. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's so great. Um, it's such a great challenge for people. It raises awareness about the association between alcohol and cancer. Many people don't realize that there's an association between the two. Alcohol is just such an accepted uh, aspect of society. Nobody really you know, says anything um, about people drinking, yet it can cause so many problems in life, one of which is um, increasing your risk of a number of different cancers. Tell me a little bit more about Dry Feb. Yeah, so as you said, we're challenging participants to go alcohol-free. We're raising funds for the Canadian Cancer Society, and that goes towards funding world-leading research, providing compassionate support to all those who need it, and leading change in the most pressing areas of healthy public policy. So really exciting, uh, you know, initiative to be a part of. And we know that over 1.5 million people are living and beyond cancer today in Canada. So it's really an opportunity to give to our community and all those who are going through a really difficult journey uh, with this disease. That's right. It's such a sobering statistic. Um, Mm -hmm. First of all, I don't want to forget to mention the website is dryfeb.ca. That's where people can sign up to go alcohol-free in February. I was looking at the website and it actually talked about some stories or shared some stories about people who had been diagnosed with cancers, cancers that they hadn't even heard of before. They didn't know what questions to ask, but they felt that joining in on Dry Feb or and having their family members and friends join in was at least something that they could do. Absolutely. We know that over 40% of people in Canada are not aware that alcohol consumption increases the risk of cancer. So Dry Feb provides us a great opportunity to reevaluate our relationships with alcohol while raising funds to save and improve lives. Uh, and that website that you mentioned, dryfeb.ca, has so many tips tricks and tools to really help this month go smoothly and successfully, um, whether it's, you know, bringing your family and friends along with you, you can sign up as an individual or join a team, but also giving tips if you're finding that it feels a little daunting, different ways that we can help cut back by swapping out some of our favorite alcohol beverages with alternatives or changing our environment so that we're meeting people in coffee shops or outside. uh, And that reduces some of the pressure uh, that we might feel if we were to show up in a bar or some of these spaces that we associate with consuming alcohol. Exactly. And, you know, not only reducing your risk of cancer, and I see so many patients in my clinical practice who have been diagnosed with cancer, and then will come back to me for different issues that they may have related to the cancer or just related to health in general. Um, you know, they've been told, you know, to stop consuming alcohol after the fact, after the diagnosis has been made, which, and, and they're surprised by that, that, that that may have increased their risk. But not only does go cutting out alcohol, reduce your risk of getting cancer. There are some other health benefits as well. What are some of those health benefits? 
Absolutely. Some of our participants will report sleeping better, having more focus during the day, more energy. So all sorts of, you know, immediate benefits that we can feel today, but also those long-term benefits that you're talking about. And we know that alcohol is associated with at least nine different types of cancer. Uh, And so, you know, we're drinking less and we're reducing our cancer risk and we can feel really good about that. And what are some of those nine types of cancer that alcohol consumption is associated with that you mentioned? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's head and neck, breast, colorectal, esophageal, liver, stomach, and pancreatic cancers. We know that alcohol is classified as a group one carcinogen, and it's estimated to be one of the top three causes of cancer deaths worldwide. So that's pretty startling. And um, regular consumption over time, even at low levels, increases your risk of cancer. We know that the number uh, of estimated cancer cases due to alcohol consumption are increasing. So anything that we can do to raise awareness, help people, you know, encourage to join these sorts of initiatives where we're thinking about it, talking about it, and doing what we can to uh, reduce our risk uh, is, is an awesome opportunity, and I'm so glad to be a part of it. It's my second Drive Feb here with the Canadian Cancer Society, so really hoping that many of your viewers and listeners will join us in this journey. I certainly hope they do. I, I talk about this quite a bit on the show. Um, you know, I'm not getting invited to a lot of parties myself because of, no, <laughs> um, because of it. But, um, you know, you, people don't think about this because they think they deserve a drink. We celebrate with alcohol. We wind down with alcohol. We socialize with alcohol. But, you know, it's an expensive proposition. Uh Does this help with uh, people's bank accounts, especially in this time where prices are so high from food to gas to clothing to travel, everything? Um, So how does it improve the health of one's bank account? I've definitely been feeling it. I noticed that I save enormous amounts of money when I cut back on my alcohol consumption. So that is a bit of a side perk. Uh, You can save that money and put it towards something else. Uh, that might help improve your, you know, physical, mental, uh, spiritual well-being. Uh, and so that is that is a nice side uh, opportunity, especially in this context where we're living with some of the highest, uh, you know, cost of living that we've ever seen. Exactly. And, um, you know, I think people don't realize uh, just how much they spend on alcohol. And, and not only, you know, the alcohol, but then everything that goes along with the alcohol, like going to the restaurant and, you know, eating out um, as you're drinking or when you're eating out, you're having a glass or two or sharing a bottle of wine and that can get quite expensive. It's often the most expensive part of the restaurant bill as well. I see patients in my clinical practice who talk to me about having stopped drinking alcohol. And um, first I wanted to mention that for some people who are consuming an excessive amount, um, are, are there some tips on the website to help them cut back or cut down, wean off alcohol so that they don't have any health issues? Yeah, drivefeb.ca definitely has some of those um, little tips to help you kind of get there. Reducing some of your snack, uh, salty snacks can make a big difference that kind of get our, our palate craving a glass of something. Um, and there's all sorts of other ones too, but um, I, yeah, it's a nice opportunity. And I think it's also thinking about all the things that we gain, you know, by reducing our alcohol consumption. It's 
true that for a long time we've celebrated with alcohol, but we can equally celebrate and connect, uh, you know, and, and share time and space with people without it. And that's something that I've really gotten to explore through Drive Beb is what, you know, my patterns look like. Um, and you know what, how much I kind of don't end up missing it as much as I thought that I might. Um, so it's been a really good opportunity. And 75% of our participants will say that after dry Feb, you know, it went so well, they felt better, that they'll continue drinking less alcohol through the rest of the year. So I think that's really what it's about. Give it a go, see how it feels. And if it works, you know, then individuals can choose for themselves what really makes sense and kind of what level of risk they're willing to or not to take on. Um, but this is a good trial run anyway to, to give it a real go. Right. That is awesome. I, you know, speak to patients, as I mentioned in my clinical practice, who have stopped on their own um, drinking alcohol. And they mentioned some of the benefits to me. Recently, I had a man in my clinical practice who was telling me that uh, his productivity increased. He gets up Mm -hmm. early in the morning now. He goes for walks. He um, feels so much better. His head is clearer and he doesn't yell at his wife any longer. Alcohol consumption Mm. affects mood. Um, and which people don't realize they may not be aware of that. And I had a woman in my practice who was telling me that, you know, she was drinking in the middle of the day and that she was screaming at her children. And and I think Mm -hmm. we underestimate the effects of alcohol, especially the hangover effects of alcohol that impact our mood and level of irritability and meanness. Um, you know, it can, uh, take many different forms, but you know, it's not until people stop that they realize, hey, I, you know, I, my behavior is better. <laughs> I'm a little bit better mm-hmm. to everybody, including myself. Um, so I hear that quite commonly. Now, you're off, also offering prizes, which everybody loves to win. First of all, who who is this contest open to? Yeah, this contest is well. The con- so for the pro- like as far as the um, the fundraiser, we're encouraging everyone uh, of, of legal age and over uh, to participate, so that they're really getting that opportunity to try and reduce their consumption. Um, and the prizes are different depending on different time periods. But we've got you know WestJet tickets for two. We've got KitchenAids. We've got. Uh, all sorts of different uh, Fitbits and, and whatnot. So it's a really exciting moment to be able to contribute to the Canadian Cancer Society, an awesome uh, charity, and also potentially uh, win something a little extra for yourself. But I also think that contributing, doing a good thing, and cutting back on your alcohol consumption to help yourself feel better are also all worthy prizes. But if you can win something on top, why not? <laughs> Absolutely. And and people really only need to raise $50 to get the ball rolling and uh, participate in winning some of those prizes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty low threshold. Uh, and, you know, very much encouraging people to share their profiles on their social media pages. Like I said, engage your family and friends. Uh, if they're supportive and are able to contribute, uh, hitting that $50 is, is not, you know, will happen in a flash. <laughs> and, and I love the fact, you know, a lot of people like to drink with other people or they want to insist that somebody else have a drink. And there's a lot of peer pressure around that. But, you know, for Dry Feb, uh, you can create or join a team, which is great because it's always easier to do something when you're doing it with a group. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Uh, it's so fun to be able to, you know, encourage each other along. You can make it a little competitive if that's kind of your spirit. Um, but also knowing that you've got a group that you can go to on Friday night and say, hey, are we doing a board game tonight or are we doing, you know, whatever it is, and you know that they're in the same boat, that they've got the same objectives as you, um, and that you can get to that goal of going uh, dry this February and also raising funds together uh, and you're not in it alone. Because there's thousands of Canadians across Canada that are participating um, and so it's just such an exciting part to, uh, opportunity to be part of that well thank you so much and remember everybody drinking about three and a half drinks a day doubles or even triples your risk of developing cancer of the mouth pharynx larynx and esophagus drinking 3.5 drinks a day increases your risk of developing colorectal cancer and breast cancer by one and a half times but the good news, cutting your consumption of alcohol can reduce this risk and lead to overall changes. Sienna, thank you so much for talking to us about this wonderful initiative, DryFeb. DryFeb.ca is the website. Thank you, Maureen. Hope you have a good rest of your day. And good luck with the fundraiser. And good luck, Canada. You can do it out there. I thought this study was particularly interesting and, and in sort of a way it relates to the show or the education I provide, a lot of the education that I provide. Cancer among younger people is on the rise according to a new study. And some of the biggest increases were seen in women and in younger people diagnosed with gastrointestinal and breast cancers. Most cancers are found in people over the age of 65, but a new study has demonstrated a concerning trend, and that is cancer among younger people, particularly women, gastrointestinal, breast, endocrine. All of these are climbing at very fast rates. In fact, these are the fastest rates. The study was published in the JAMA Network Open, and it showed that while cancers among older adults have declined, cancers amongst people younger than the age of 50 have increased slightly overall with the largest increases amongst those ages 30 to 39. That's right, you heard it, 30 to 39 is on the rise. And this is a population that has had much less focus in cancer research, but their numbers are getting bigger. So what does that mean? Mm, it means that we need to do more research, more cancer research to understand why this is happening. And you know, cancer, so difficult, it's so tough. It's quality of life issues, it's morbidity, mortality issues, there's so much that's tied into it. Hope is tied in, and I mean, it's such a devastating diagnosis when somebody gets that diagnosis. And depending on the type of cancer that you have, there may or may not be treatments. I mean, it may be terminal, or your quality of life may be horrific because of some of the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation and immunotherapy, although immunotherapy is showing a lot of hope in certain types of cancer. But that's for another segment. So if some younger people have an increased risk of cancer as they age, the concern there is that the cancer risk may propagate. And so that's why we have to understand what is causing this risk. And if we can, do something to change that preventive medicine. Otherwise, it's going to be a bigger and bigger problem. We really don't know why cancer is rising among younger people, but there are several possible reasons behind the trend. And these might surprise you. These are things we talk about on the show quite often. Those are the rising obesity rates. 
Very, very important. Obesity is a medical condition. It's a disease. And it's important that people with obesity be treated. Also lifestyle factors like it, like consumption of alcohol, smoking, poor sleep, insomnia, and leading a sedentary lifestyle. Now we can't forget some of the other factors like environmental factors, and that includes exposure to carcinogenic chemicals, pollutants, because they may pl play a role as well. But the bigger role is certainly played by obesity, alcohol, smoking. You know, a lot of women after they're diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, they'll tell me that their cancer doctor, their oncologist told them to stop drinking. And they had no idea that there was an association with alcohol consumption and breast cancer. In this particular study, the researchers analyzed data from more than 560,000 patients in the US between the years 2010 and 2019 who had early onset cancer. And that is cancers that affected people under the age of 50. And they found that overall early onset cancer diagnoses rose by nearly 1% during the study period to 56,500 patients, up from 56,051 patients in 2010. And they also noticed that the trend was the most pronounced in the 30 to 39 year old age group. And the cases there were rising 19%. That is statistically significant. I mean, the early onset cancer diagnoses rise by 1%, but that, so that's everyone under 50, but the people in, in between the ages of 30 and 39 had an increase of about 19%. That is, in, it's just amazing, it's incredible. And there were significant increases in certain types of cancer according to this study. Breast cancer, for example, accounted for the highest number of cancer cases in younger people and increased about 8% over the 10 year period gastrointestinal cancers. So they include in ca cancers of the colon, the appendix, the bile duct. They increased about 15% during that time. That put it in, um, well, it made it the fastest growing type of cancer among younger people, gastrointestinal cancers, the fastest growing type of cancer among younger people. And the differences between men and women were striking. The number of early onset cancers in women increased by 4.4% during the study period. Amongst the men, the number declined. Yes, you heard that right. The number declined by 5%. The increases in the younger women were probably though related to the rise in the cancers of the breast and the uterus. And so those are are, although men can get breast cancers, they don't get it at the rate that women get it. The total numbers were small, but the biggest increases in cancer among younger people by race were seen in Asian or Pacific Islander, that was 32%, and Hispanic patients, 28%. And cases among younger black patients slightly declined, falling by about 5%. And they're really not sure what the decline means, if it's meaningful or if a lot of the cases go underdiagnosed, in part because people don't have access to healthcare, so they're not really sure about that. Overall, younger people diagnosed with cancer still represent a relatively small portion of overall cancer cases, but the increases certainly are concerning. And we all need to be concerned about this. It's a very important trend, especially if that trend continues, but it is just a small part of what's going on in, in oncology. Probably everybody listening tonight 
knows somebody or has lost somebody or loves somebody who has been affected by cancer. And it's just a terrible disease. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. It's horrible. It's so difficult. Um, I, I, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's heartbreaking on loved ones and families and friends. And, um, there's just so much pain and suffering that goes along and we really need to make a lot more advances. And I have a few opinions on cancer research myself, which I won't go into tonight, but <laughs> perhaps another time, but we really need to put all of the money toward the cancer research itself and kind of stay away from overpaying some people in this field. But um, this particular study did not examine cancer stages, so it's unclear from the data whether the early onset cancers developed earlier and were found earlier, perhaps, or were simply um, you know, being diagnosed earlier in the course of the disease. And early detection is helpful. It's very hard to get a stage for terminal illness, um, terminal diagnosis. It's absolutely awful. But most cancer risk factors are based on studies of predominantly older adults, but the studies are being designed to help understand how certain exposures in earlier life can affect cancer risk in later life as well. So there will be some new designs um, for new studies, I'm sure, and hopefully this information will motivate uh, researchers to develop new ways to study and help identify the risk factors that may be able to explain the trend. But um, other research has shown a trend toward younger diagnosis in colorectal cancer. And in fact, one in five new cases of colorectal cancer occur in people under the age of 55. That rate has doubled over the past 30 years, according to a recent report from the American Cancer Society. And it's important, and, in, and the American Cancer Society updated its colorectal cancer screening guidelines, lowering the age to start screening for those at the average risk uh, from age 50 to 45. Um, those people who are at average risk for that, um, so it's lower. Never too early to screen for any of these, to be honest with you. Um, but anyway, we need to be, do better at identifying people who are at higher risk. You also, if you have any symptoms, you need to go and see your doctor. And screening is very, very important. And um, about you know, 200,000 new cancer cases are diagnosed each year in Canada. And in some cases, there are no screening tests for certain cancers. But when there are, the tests often aren't recommended for younger people who are at average risk. So advocate for yourself. Speak to your doctor. One of the most important things you can do is minimize your risk. So manage your body weight. Get daily exercise. Limit your alcohol consumption. And of course, avoid smoking. <music> I had a patient in my clinical practice who presented with a viral infection that causes a painful rash. She had been diagnosed with shingles. This is also associated with stress, depletion, not feeling well, and you can have symptoms of general malaise, fatigue, mild low-grade fever, um, diarrhea, nausea, and just generally not feeling well, which she'd had at the beginning. But about a week or so had passed and she wasn't feeling any better. She'd actually come into my clinical practice to see me about something else. But of course, in my 
assessment of her, she told me that she had shingles. Shingles can occur anywhere on your body. It typically looks like a single strip of blisters that wraps around the left side or the right side of your torso. It's caused by the varicella zoster virus, the same virus that causes chickenpox. And this patient had been put on an antiviral medication, which was great. She was also taking a medication for the pain, which she was taking at night. But you know, she hadn't stopped her life. And my recommendation for her was to, you know, get into bed, actually chill out, get some rest, drink fluids, chicken noodle soup, take care of yourself, get a good book. Don't add anything on. Problem was she was having a party for 35 people that night. And then she happened to mention to me that she was going the next day to have an IV infusion, a Myers cocktail. Myers cocktails are popular formulas among complementary and alternative medicine providers for IV vitamin therapy. The Myers formula consists of high doses of vitamin B, vitamin C, all the variety of the vitamin Bs and minerals, magnesium, calcium, for example, and it's mixed with sterile water and administered intravenously by nurses or other healthcare providers. You see advertisements for IV rehydration at ski resorts and other resorts. And I see them on elevators and hotels and they're mainly advertised or they're marketing them to people to treat hangovers. Um, I thought this patient would have been a whole lot better off to just stay home, take care of herself. She said she was feeling chilled, you know, just get under the covers instead of dragging her kids off for her to get some IV to the tune of 170 to $300. I would have even just canceled it and paid the money because it is completely unnecessary and wasn't going to do anything for her. You know, we want the quick fix in life and that's, that's the problem. Nobody wants to stop, rest, smell the roses, take a breather and take care of yourself. We think that an IV solution of a whole bunch of minerals and vitamins that is going to make us feel better, but it's not because our body needs only a certain amount. And if we get more than that, we just excrete it. So basically this patient was going to have expensive urine. The Myers cocktail has not been proven to effectively treat any medical condition. And despite the lack of evidence, you know, we do have healthcare people promoting the Myers cocktail as a definitive medical treatment. And if you're not in healthcare and you're not looking into this kind of thing, you're not going to understand that, you know, especially if you're looking for a quick fix, you're not going to understand that this isn't going to work. And you know, there's more disposable money today and, and people just think, oh, great. That's all I have to pay two, $300 and I'm going to feel better. But I don't think so. I'm going to be following up with this patient and I'll let you know how, how she made out. Um, you know, IV drips are low risk for most healthy people, but we do recommend against them, healthcare providers, mainly because they're expensive and unnecessary. There's nothing magical about getting vitamins in an IV. If you feel you want extra nutrition, take a vitamin, take a multivitamin if you like. If you have a headache, take a Motrin if you want, ibuprofen. Some people are intrigued by IV treatments that can supposedly cure a hangover, as I mentioned earlier. But um, you know what? Hangovers, they're not going to be cured by an IV solution either, to be honest with you. Getting IV fluids to make your headache, fatigue, and nausea, common symptoms of a hangover, may sound more appealing than lying in bed until those unpleasant symptoms pass, but there's no validity to this type of treatment. And then to just expand on this, some fabulous marketers have also created liquid IV. 
They're recommending you take that before consuming alcohol. So something else for you to consume, not just the alcohol, but just be the ultra consumer. So they're suggesting you take a liquid IV, which is basically a packet of minerals and vitamins. And, and as we know, they don't necessarily contain the nutrients that they say they're going to contain because these are not regulated. So these work similarly with vitamin water packs or sports drinks, which don't work either, to be totally honest with you. Best thing is to ensure hydration, drink enough water-based fluid so that your urine is clear 90% of the time and eat a healthy diet and actually drink in moderation. These IVs take anywhere from 15 to 90 minutes to complete, depending on how many bags they've sold you. Some patients feel the effects they say, this is what the marketers of the IV people, get a load of this, I love this one. (laughs) They say that some patients feel the effects four days to two weeks after the IV. You were long gone from the clinic. You have forgotten about your IV. There's a placebo effect. You've forgotten about your hangover. I mean, that's just outrageous. You've probably gone in, unless you're hungover, but um, you know, you're probably fairly well hydrated if you're a healthy person. Um, and you know, we, we know that from our urine. So just take a look at your urine. If it's clear yellow and you're voiding regularly every three to four hours, you're probably pretty well hydrated. Um, but after the IV, you might actually pee just a little bit more and the urine might be a little bit clearer. Anyway, um, it's just ridiculous. You know, mild hydration makes up only one part of a hangover recipe, to be honest with you. And then you might have a placebo effect, might make the hangover symptoms a bit easier to manage. So if you do get that IV or you take this liquid IV, which you pour into water and drink that, and those are expensive as well. Um, but neither water nor electrolytes can prevent a hangover when you're drinking an excessive amount of alcohol. So two of the biggest disadvantages of the liquid IV, and that's the IV in the packet, and it comes in a number of different uh, names, brand names, but they have high sodium typically and high sugar levels. And adding an extra 500 to 1,000 milligrams of salt or more than 10 grams of sugar to your daily diet is really unhealthy and can be dangerous over the long term, and especially for people who are um, suffering with hypertension or they don't even know they have hypertension. They are also overpriced. As I said, they may not contain the ingredients, um, that they say they are. And you know what, how much of each nutrient do you actually need? So for calcium, for example, you need a thousand to 1200 milligrams per day. That's the daily requirement. You know, it's recommended not to have more than 2000 milligrams, folate, 400 micrograms. And it's recommended not to have more than a thousand micrograms because it can cause harm. Iron, eight milligrams is the daily requirement. You don't want to exceed 45 milligrams. Vitamin B6, 1.5 milligrams, and you don't want to exceed a hundred milligrams. And anything your body doesn't need, it's going to pee out. Like vitamin C, for example. Oh my gosh, I see so many people promoting vitamin C and people take so much vitamin C. They think it's going to prevent a cold and they think it's going to prevent a urinary tract infection. It can actually irritate your bladder, but you definitely don't want to take more than 2000 milligrams of vitamin C. So anyway, 
just be wise, be smart, and don't fall for these marketing schemes and scams, which are all over the internet. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.